You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery Series Podcast, Episode 23. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Bonnie Koo, who authored the book, Defining Wealth for Women. We talk about money mindset, something I think we all could use a little bit better insight into. Please enjoy the show. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. So I have a, a really special guest on the show today. This is Bonnie Koo. She wrote the book, Defining Wealth for Women, Peace, Purpose, and Plenty of Cash. And this is a fantastic book. It fills a gap that is just not on the market here too. And it's something that's so needed. It's a, a way of combining practical money aspects and the mindset, which is actually, I think, more important than some of these practical aspects. And so Bonnie Koo, thank you so much for coming onto the show. We really appreciate you being on here. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I'm a dermatologist by training, so I'm not a surgeon, although I considered it for sure. Like my mom always said she thought I'd be a surgeon because I'm really good with my hands. I mean, basically I knew how to cook well. <laughs> I don't know, but I guess, I don't know, maybe that translates into surgery skills or surgeon skills, but I do think I would have made a good surgeon, but I don't like the OR. <laughs> so I, I basically knocked out all the OR specialties, including anesthesia. It was just too cold for me and I pee a lot. So like, I just felt like that wasn't going to work. <laughs> I'm just being totally honest <laughs> and all that scrubbing and, you know, I already have dry hands. So, but you know, I did enjoy my surgery rotation, except for the early hours. Like I had to get up at four 30 for that. So that was a long thing, but I'm a dermatologist. I'm from New Jersey, which isn't that interesting, but I lived in New York city on and off for 20 years. Um, I love New York city. I don't live there anymore. I'm in Jersey and I have a business now, Wealthy Mom MD. So I stopped practicing, I guess it's been two years now. I think that's so fascinating. I think your whole career trajectory is so fascinating too, because, and I think a lot of people are struggling with this, this idea that we go from training, it's a linear path, you're supposed to do this. And, you know, we're filled with, you're supposed to do this. And you kind of like book that, you know, relatively early on. And yeah, I started as something called Miss Bonnie MD. Then I changed right. the name. Yes. And I knew that you started that and then it, it changed into what it is now. Um, and so what led you on that path? Because of course, that's definitely the path least traveled. Um, and so how did that come about for you? Yeah. So it's not like I went to med school or even when I became attending, I was like, I'm going to start a business and do something else. Like that's definitely not how it happened. And so I love hearing the origin stories of, you know, entrepreneurs. It's always so fun. I mean, basically the story is this. I'm just laughing because I think it's kind of funny how it started. So when I started my new job, it was a actually a new derm department. It's still early in its infancy. It's in New York, Long Island specifically. And since it was new, uh, the my, I didn't have like a full load of patients right away. So the first few months, it was pretty slow. So I say that to say that I, that meant I had a lot of free time to scroll on Facebook. Okay. Because <laughs> I had to be there. It's not like I was sitting at home where I could do whatever, right? I had to be there. And I ran the consult service. So I had to be there to round in the afternoon with my residents. So Facebook groups, I felt like were really becoming a thing then, or at least it was new to me. I was educating myself about money. And you know, my girlfriends, my physician girlfriends knew that I was doing this. And one of them was in PMG. I didn't know what PMG was at the time, because I, I, I was single and I wasn't a mom. And she's like, Oh, let me add you to the money group. There was, you know, 
a PMG offshoot that was about money. So I joined that group. And like I said, I had so much free time. And I also knew all the answers that why don't you start a blog? That was not something I was thinking about. And I remember being, what are you talking about? <laughs> that was my reaction. I was like, what? Well, the White Coat Investor, you know, you probably know who he is or that brand. And I was like, well, he already has a blog and he's written about everything. I usually tell this story because I, I, lo I love to do business coaching and I always like weave in lessons. I'm like, so that's the first lesson because I think a lot of people in business think, well, someone or us, everyone else is already doing this or someone else is already doing this, but that you know, doesn't mean that you can't do it. So she's like, yeah, but he's a dude. I've ha I actually did have a blog before, like more of a personal blog in the past. So I was familiar with the concept. It wasn't like new to me. And I had a background in IT. So I say that to say that um, it was really easy for me to whip up a website. You know, I just did it by myself and started writing. I got sponsors. That's kind of like the old school method of making money in a blog. I got sponsors right away, but mainly because I was answering everyone's questions. And I was directing all of them to like insurance agents that I trusted. And so I asked them to sponsor it and I didn't charge them a lot. So they sponsored it. So I made money from day one, like, you know, not a lot. It was like $7,000 the first year. So that went on and fast forward, I was like, what, what is, what am I doing with this? Like I kind of got to, it was fun. Like I really enjoyed doing, I really enjoyed writing the blog. And plus what was great about the blog is people tend to ask the same questions over and over again. And so it was really efficient for me to just be like, hey, read this blog post. Blog post I wrote that answers this question in detail instead of like, you know, typing with my fingers on my iPhone feverishly, right? So it was just efficient for me to do that. And so it was easy to come up with topics because I just answered people's the most common questions. And then I got kind of confused because <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm a dermatologist. I don't need extra money. So why am I doing this? Right. And so that's basically what happened. I kind of came to a fork in a road and I was at a conference and someone actually it was Peter Kim, who you probably know. I was like, I'm so confused. What do I do? And he was like, he basically, he said, go big or go home. Like, what's the point? Yeah. And even when he said that, I was like, I don't know. I'm so confused. Like I remember <laughs> being like, just so like, I don't know what to do. And then I started working with a coach, Sonny Smith, and I just decided there's, there's no rhyme or reason. I just was like, why not? I don't even remember what, how that happened, but maybe she remembers. I don't remember. And so that's kind of the end of the story. Well, not the end, but just sort of like the beginning, I guess, in some ways. And then I became, that's, so I wasn't a certified coach then. And so then I just, after working with her, I was like, oh, this is what's missing from money education. And so I got certified. I guess I finished my certification March of 2020. So that was two years ago. It seems like a long time ago. I don't know. I feel like time has been compressed <laughs> it really not has just, not just a pandemic but I, I think when you're um doing a lot of personal development it feels like time is fast like I feel like I've lived a couple lifetimes just in the past few years if that makes sense now, it makes total sense to me and actually you know um I resonated with a couple things that you said is that you know once you start like coming up with an idea that's a little bit different than the norm um you know I went from employed to private practice I kind of look back and I don't even necessarily recognize who that person was that made that decision I'm very yeah. proud of her because that was like took a lot of guts and I don't know what I was thinking at the time because we're sort of expected to do these things there is something that just stirs in you and says there's something else and yeah. there was something in me that was saying that, you know, you're following the path 
of least resistance and you're better than that. Then like something sparks you and then it just kind of catches hold, but there's that indecision that's, that's helpful. And I, and another thing that resonated is like these people come along and send messages. And I remember sitting at the computer a little overwhelmed. And, and uh, I talked about this in the last podcast about one of my colleagues leaned over is like, you know, you did this for a reason. And then all you need sometimes is that reminder, like, yeah. oh, that's right. Because whenever you do this path, that's, you know, forging that's that people haven't gone before, you're not exactly sure if it's going to work. It's a little overwhelming. It's hard to do those things. Yeah, that's why I always tell everyone who's starting a business, like, you need to have support, like a coach, basically. Right. And because I think that you can drive yourself a little crazy, both with overwhelm and indecision and things like that. And sometimes, you know, the, walked away from some coaching sessions where I'm like, well, that was obvious, but it really isn't obvious at the time. Well, you know, one of the things I tell people is, and this is for money and business, I mean, really for anything, you're, you know, your, your only limitation is, you know, your mind. So I tell like people in business, like the limiting reagent in a business is the CEO. And what I mean by that is like, not just them as a person, I mean, them as a person, but like their brain, what they think they can do or what they can't do. The pandemic did this for a lot of us is the pandemic kind of like got us to stop and look around and kind of almost reset. And I think that was when a lot of us started questioning um, a lot of the things that we were doing. And this is why I really like um, your book and a a number of things that you bring up. Um, And I heard this both from uh, Peter Kim in the first Leverage and Growth Summit too, was this idea of a lot of times think that wealth is trading time for money. And, uh, you know, of course, like, like, well, if I want to make more money, I just have to make more time or I just have to work harder. Um, Work more, see more patience. Exactly. And and of course, we all know that that's like a quick way to burn out too. I know that you work with people that have that concept. Like, how do you advise someone who thinks like the only way to make money is to work harder? What do you tell them? Yeah. I mean, this is, first of all, it's such a common thing because that's kind of how doctors get paid in traditional clinical medicine. But I mean that, like, we're just so used to thinking like I get paid by the hour, paid, you know, an annual salary because you know, an annual salary is, a, is just paid by the hour times 365 days or whatever, right? It's a lot to unpack because I think it's real because it's been ingrained. So it's definitely not a one-time thing. Like you, I basically have to untrain people to like disassociate money and time. The thing is like, I think on, on one level, people know it's true because people know that people make a lot more money and aren't like, we all have the same 24 hours a day. But I do think there's this belief among physicians that that's the only way they can make money. And also, you know, if you think about residency, because I remember in residency, we had someone come in to talk about the different career paths. And I think you did a great job, actually. You, know, you talked about private practice, starting your own, joining a place like Kaiser, academics. So we talked about those paths. But even that is like limited, right? Because it's like, go to med school, do residency, and then you should work as a doctor to see patients. Like that kind of makes sense. But there's so many other avenues. And I think some people know this. People know that people go to pharma or like consulting. Like I remember someone went to McKinsey for consulting, right? So we sort of know people do that, but it's not the norm. And I almost feel like, and I remember thinking people who do that are copping out or, you know, having like a judgment about them. Like I definitely remember having that judgment about that. And I think that's common among physicians, right? Because I know it's not just me who has that opinion. It takes, I was going to say, it takes time to unpack, which is, you know, kind of what we're talking about. And so I just introduced the idea that maybe it's not true that they can make more money without working more. Because I think it's like this, not just money comes from time, but the only way to make more is for them to like put more hours in. And I work with specifically women, a lot of them are moms and a lot of them don't want to do that for obvious reasons, right? It's like 
one of the main things we work on with my I work on with my clients because it's such a big topic and many of them are trying to work less they want to work less but they feel like they can't because of the money and I, I definitely see a lot of shift in surgeons and the the younger generation of saying I don't actually want to be in the hospital twenty four seven and doing all these things and I can still be a successful surgeon I challenge this idea that I have to be in there all the time and so it's not just money but it's this idea of being a good surgeon and so we certainly tie a lot of value both time and um, you know our perception of skill to amount of time during the day which of course is limited interesting enough like one of the more popular podcast episodes we've had is is taking control of your surgical career with locums, which kind of tells me that people are starting to kind of uncouple this idea of time for money and, uh, you know, this kind of letting some of the traditional aspects go. So it seems like a lot of people are starting to really change what they value. Um, and of course, you know, this kind of plays into the idea of money, which is just simply like numbers, numbers on a screen, basically for most of us now. Exactly. But I know, and you've seen this too, um, people have such a powerful response to this idea of money. And I know that um, you talk about this a lot too, which is so interesting, this idea that money is immoral. Um, And so tell us a little bit about that concept. I think a lot of us think that rich people are bad or greedy, just negative connotations. And some people are like, oh, I don't think that. I'm like, if someone said, oh, you must be really rich because I look at your car. I don't think people take that as a compliment for the most part right. because I think it's just they're embarrassed or they don't want people to think they're rich. So it's interesting just like uncoupling that or that money corrupts people. I actually record a podcast today about because there's a lot of concerns among my clients that their children are going to grow up entitled and spoiled because they have money. And so basically I, I, on the podcast, I was like, that is not a thing. Money doesn't create that. <laughs> right? Like more because I think I was actually coaching a client on this. And I think she was worried that more having more money, she kept saying, well, I don't need more money. I'm already wealthy. And I was like, stop saying you don't need more money. <laughs> Number one, nobody needs money. That's true. Right. But like saying that is just, I don't know, it doesn't do anything. And I think she was like, you know, I think I'm afraid that if I have more money, it'll, it'll corrupt me somehow. And I think that's kind of a common belief. I asked her, help me understand how this money like jump into your brain and corrupt your brain? Like, I, you know, these are like the coach type questions we ask our clients. And so I was like, help me understand how that's a thing. Like, how does money change who you are? And like, when I say that out loud, people are like, oh, oh. Because I think that people think money does things to them, whether it's corrupting, whether it's making them feel better, right? Because a lot of my clients think like, oh, once they have a certain money, they'll feel better. I'm like, but you went from residency to an attending salary where you quite, it's like, we know that's not true. But you know, our, most of our clients think the circumstances create their feelings. So just like unpacking that and teaching that it's not, it's not a thing. So but yeah, the money is a moral thing. I think especially if you grew up in a religious household, which I did like a Christian household, that I think that can be tough. I think that the best thing that I heard, um, I forgot exactly who, where it was, um, was that money makes you more of who you already are. Yeah. And so like, if you're already generous, that more money lets you be more generous. Um, and if you're already you know, going to be greedy or stingy, you're still going to be greedy and stingy with more money in your hand. Yeah. Um, I have a good story about that. So I remember when someone was considering taking my program, she messaged me and she's like, I'm really scared. You're going to tell me to stop donating. Cause I really, she's like, I really love doing that. Like, I feel like you're going to tell me to like save money and budget and stuff like that. And I was like, or I'm going to teach you how to make so much more money. You could donate even more money. She's like, oh, (laughs) because she didn't consider that. I think, you know, one thing I really see among women, 
I guess men too, I just don't talk to them as much. Because I think the overarching message around money is like learning how to save or cutting expenses. But very few people, and this is in my book, so you probably read it, people don't consider why don't they figure out how to make more money? Like it's just, it's like when I say it, it's like obvious, but so many people like never come up with that on their own. They're like, oh, what? Yes. I, like, doesn't I, that sound so much better than like cutting out a latte a day? I mean, I think there is something about, I don't like to use the word cutting, but there is something about looking at what you spend and maybe like being more thoughtful about it, you know, or maybe temporarily shrinking your spending to reach a goal and that's all said and fine kind of the analogy i give is like kind of like you go on a temporary diet to look good in that dress at this wedding or whatever right but it's not a long-term solution and i just it just feel like it doesn't work because you feel deprived basically right and you know i remember reading this in the um the you need a budget book um, and i know the reference uh, you need a budget as an, an option for you because it lets you do some forward planning um yeah it's my favorite I program it really is, you know, and their their book was helpful, very short uh, as well, but it kind of fed a lot into what you were saying too, um, which is it. he would, like, even when they weren't making a lot of money, um, like really kind of designate like this idea that every dollar has a job. A budget can actually set you free if you say, I'm going to set this amount of time and use that um, for what I want, which is, of course, different than what you had mentioned in the book too, of the way we spend money that hurts us in ways, which is the, to get the dopamine surge. And this is going to make me feel a certain way. What advice do you give the person who you know has some spending habits that are a little bit out of control? What are some ways that they can uh, use some mind work to help them out with that? You know, I, I do spend a whole chapter on this. And so it's not even unlearning, but it's really, it's an over-desire problem, right? So like overspending, overeating, overdrinking, they kind of all in the same bucket, but it's like, you know, the Pavlov dog experiment, you know, you can retrain your brain to desire spending less overspending, which there's no like, def it's like not a certain amount of money. But if you just notice you tend to spend money and it could just, it doesn't have to be a specific thing. It could just be, you like to Amazon shop late at night for no, and you're not buying anything that you actually need. You have, and then you regret it later, or maybe there's a financial consequence. So that's how I define overspending. Just even like telling people that you can actually unlearn this habit because I think what I see a lot of people do and there's so many analogies between money and dieting is I think people do you know people go on diets so people will do like a one month no spend a month for example yeah sure you could do that for a month but then you just go back because it doesn't actually teach you how to change your behavior because what happens is you want to you see something you want to buy and then you just you just like there's like an auto at least the person thinks it's an automatic reaction to buy and the, but the reason why that happens is because they have this you know, it's, this is like feelings, right? Feelings when like they basically feel the desire to buy it and they don't know what to do except to buy it. Mm -hmm. And even just telling my clients, like, you know, there's other options besides buying it just because you, just because you want some doesn't mean you, you should buy it or, you know, that you have to buy it. And like logically, they know that's true. And so, and the reason why people can't is because they don't know how to like sit with that feeling of wanting something and not buying it. And it's yeah. hard. Like, I'm not going to say it's easy, right? If it was easy, they would have done it already. And so it is like, work you know you have to pause and so i will make suggestions like kind of like when you're angry you tell people like take a deep breath and count to one two three but the same thing applies for this right yes and just letting them feel that it is uncomfortable it's um for me it's like this restless feeling like i want to buy something right it's like it's it is like emotion because you got to click something right but it feel it's kind of like when your phone beeps and like you want to check it right away. But if you don't, you like, it, it feels a little anxious almost. I don't know. It's like, it's probably different for everyone. 
and learning how to be okay with that and letting it actually like percolate through your body. And once you do it once, you're like, oh, that wasn't a big deal, but it was hard. And then you just keep practicing that over and over again. And it just, right. it becomes easier. And sometimes you won't do it. Sometimes you'll just buy the thing or eat the cookie. Like, you know, this is the same thing for like overeating. I don't particularly have an over, I mean, sometimes I do, that's a whole nother story. So it's, that's really what, what's the work. And it's, yeah, it's not, it's not easy. And you have to commit to doing it. I completely agree. You know, I think this, and that opens up a whole, you know, idea of things of the ability to sit with an uncomfortable feeling. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times we feel like we should, you know, make ourselves feel better or figure out some way out of it or whatever, you know, get the quick dopamine surge to make ourselves feel better. But like the ability to sit with an uncomfortable emotion and not do something with it or not feel compelled to do something with it is definitely a skill that is hard and learnable. <laughs> still hard yeah, learnable i think is the, the key key thing to say right and you know that's another thing that i really liked about your book was that you gave very practical steps for doing these things it's like you know there's there's a little bit of the woo of like the, the, the idea of thoughts and feelings and things like that that people have not really heard as much about but putting it in such a way that is practical and accessible and learnable to improve some of our habits and really start unraveling some of our ideas about money. Because um, even just you know looking at your chapters, like all these myths are so helpful. Like money is complicated, and you're like, of course it's not. And money is stressful. Like we can challenge that. Money is immoral. We've already talked about that. Um, you know this idea that everyone um, has to work for money. All these things that are just really you read these chapter titles you're like well it, those are totally true and then you're like nope not true at all <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know that was that's that's kind of fun the way i organized a book yeah basically i feel like i kind of teach the opposite of what most people teach like i don't think they're wrong you know but it's just like offering another way th- to like look at things really is what it comes down to right and what has been the reception to this book here too what are people that um telling you that they've taken away from the most from this book yeah, I mean, it's it's all different sort of things. Um, but I think it, de- it kind of depends on how familiar they are with it. Because some people kind of know thoughts create their feelings or whatever. But they haven't, like, really thought about it specifically for money. Because I think a lot of us think, like, oh, that but it doesn't apply to, like, this topic, right? But it applies to everything. And just, I think even the concept, like, the way they think about money affects how much money they have. I think that's a novel thing because I think people think, no, it's because I'm a pediatrician. That's, that's something I hear a lot. I don't mean to pick on them, but that is what they tend to say. Family medicine says the same thing to me. And I think just, like, cha- you know, challenging. I challenge that, and I think they feel challenged when they read the book, and I think they leave the book thinking, like, oh, maybe something else is possible. And that's, like, the first thing that has to happen like this curiosity like oh something else is available and so and it, it just depends on which topics I think really apply to them I think the debt chapter I know is I think the hardest topic for people to get their hands around or heads around I should say because it's been so ingrained in us that debt is bad Mm-hmm. and this this rush to pay off student loans, which I think is horrible. Like, it's it's not that it's horrible to pay them off quickly, but that they're really missing an opportunity to build wealth. Yeah, and I think that you you had a really great point in that too, because I think there has been a big push um, for, you know, paying down all the debt. Um, now, if you have 
low income or um, low interest debt, and you're able to leverage that and do something higher, um, then that's how, you know, it's taking the risks and really understanding that the risks are, don't have to feel risky. Um, and I, I really liked your challenging this thought that, you know, for one thing, that there's a ceiling amount of money that we can make. And I think that we're taught that with the, this is how much you make with MGMA, and this is how much you do this. And this is, this is all you can get. Whereas if you start realizing that, well, that's our limited way of thinking. Now, if we kind of say like, instead of paying off these student loans and then just working the, you know, Monday through Friday kind of aspect, as you mentioned, like from the industrial revolution uh, remnants, if we kind of challenge that, so we can actually work less, we can make more, we could leverage um, our lower interest uh, aspects and do more higher interest uh, returns. And, you know, once we kind of get out of our own way, that that's how we can, you know, leverage our, our, our own knowledge and gain the wealth that we want. Uh, and I think that's just something that I've learned over the last few years, hanging around a lot more entrepreneurs. Um, but I really thought that you laid it out very nicely in the book um, that is more accessible to the everyday person. Yeah, I mean, entrepreneurship is so fun because there really is no limit. It's right, there really is no limit. And sometimes I use that against me. I'm like, well, should I want to have a $10 million business? Because that doesn't, because I know some people like, you know, they, they know they want to build like a huge multi-million dollar empire. And I'm still undecided, Amy, if I'm truthful. Like I, part of me feel, part of me is like, I definitely want a million dollar business. I'm thinking like 5 million right now. Mm-hmm. And, but I haven't like, and it's not that I don't think I can build it more than that. I just don't know. Do I really want to do that? So that's, that's kind of where I'm at in terms of, but even that, like, you know, so Amy, when I was. I've worked in academics, I've done private practice, I've done locums, I've done telederms, so I've kind of like done it many different ways. But I remember in private practice and I remember actually sitting down and doing the math on how much I can make as an employed physician working four days a week because I wasn't willing to work five. And I calculated that pretty much the max I could make is 500K, which is a lot of money. But even before that, I, I think the thought or even the idea of making a million dollars, like it didn't even enter my brain because I think I was just like, that's just never going to happen. Like, I don't think I was consciously thinking it's never going to happen, but because I subconsciously did, it was just like, yeah, it just wasn't even available to me. Yeah. But now I'm just like, I'm definitely doing that. <laughs> and like, cr- it's crazy for me to even like, when I think about that and realize I didn't always believe that. Right. Yeah. And I mean, at this point now is just kind of like fun becomes a game. Like, I wonder how much I can make. And- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is like a game and it's, you know, I have to even check my brain about the, you know, the immoral money and and the morality because sometimes I'm like, well, do I, should I, do I need to make that much? Like, is that being greedy? Like that definitely enters my brain sometimes. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. And so I, I mean, I, everything in this book I've had to unpack myself. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, I don't want to just, I don't want to like say it's super easy. And also one thing I've learned, Amy, is just because you learned there's a different way doesn't mean like you're going to have pristine thoughts about money or whatever it is that you've worked on for for the rest of your life, you know? Well, I totally agree. Um, and I think, you know, interestingly enough that my theory on the best coaches, the best coaches are the people that are, they're actually coaching themselves, you know, that we coach like ourselves a couple steps behind, which also means we've kind of like run through the river of misery ourselves, and still sometimes some remnants of it as well. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I totally am with you. It's like, uh, I have worked with a lot of my many money thoughts too. Like 
I don't know about asking for it or, you know, might be greedy for it. Um, but I've definitely really started embracing the, it makes you more of who you are. So I've been, and especially being in proper practice, now I can be more generous to my employees and I can, you know, think about things that we could do for the business and really, um, expand the um, opportunity for the patients. And so I, I look back and I've kind of evolved my ideas about private practice versus employed is that private practice also gives you, it gives you more money within your control, which means you can do more for it, um, which then improves the experience of your employees and your patients, which improves yeah. your experience. Um, and so in that case, it really does like more money coming in that you, I can control. I can actually return that in ways that are really expanding the business and, and helping ways. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. I think it's so fun and like a privilege to be, you know, I just have one part-time employee right now, but it's, it's really fun for me to like pay her more, like give her a bonus or she's actually a coach too. So I told her I'd pay for her master, like, you know. It's only a hundred bucks, but I'm paying for her travel and a hotel and things like that. So that's fun. And then uh, like we had webinars. So I just, I bought some prizes for people too. And I was like, this is so fun to just mm-hmm. do stuff like that, you know? And, and I mean, in that way, it kind of it changed a little bit about how I feel about money. Like there's the security, of course, now we've been past the security. Now we can actually start having fun with it. Um, and that part has been, you know, pretty gratifying. The one thing that I wanted to talk to you about, because I know that you've gone through Carl Lowenthal's course as well. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, this was really just shocking to me. It is, it is and it isn't. Um, at the beginning of the book, how you mentioned in 1963, it was legal to pay women less for the same job as men. And in 1974 was the first time women no longer needed a man to co-sign a loan. You know, I was born in 1974. So, I mean, it's, it's shocking how far that we've come. What is your take on some of the gender differences? I know this is like an enormous subject, but like, yeah. what are some of your thoughts on that? And I, I guess specifically why you chose this book for women. Yeah. So, you know, what you said about it was illegal up until the point it was legal. But the thing is like, even though it's technically illegal, we still know what happens, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, sure. some of it hasn't changed. It's just not, you know, illegal. Just because a law has changed doesn't mean it's actually changed like, you know, practically. So yeah, I mean, the reason why I do think it was a result of studying with Cara, you know, cause she's all about, you know, feminism and, you know, F the patriarchy. And I really learned from her just, all this socialization for women, not just around money, but, you know, we, we care a lot what other people think. And we're, you know, a lot of the, a lot of us are people pleasers, but, you know, because we're women, because society has taught us to care about other people's opinions, then more than our opinion of ourselves. And so when it comes to money, like it, it makes sense that women are less confident with money or they, or they think they're bad with money because the history of all of mankind was basically telling us we're not able or we're not smart enough or can't be trusted to steward our own money like we literally weren't allowed to and so that you know has consequences that have like trickled down even though technically everything's equal even though it's not really that's just trickled down it's it's like it's i basically say it's like in the air so you can't like unsee it and then some of the things i talked about in my book were things like you know if you just look at the types of articles geared towards gir- women versus men. I think that's changing though now, but things like how, I think there's an emphasis on even like young girls like to save money and, you know, don't shop too much, right? Men aren't told don't shop too much. You know what I mean? It's like little <laughs> yes. things like that, little differences like that. I think men, it's not that men don't have their, um, 
there are battles with money because, you know, men are taught that you need to make money, you know, or, you know, because money is power and a man that doesn't make a lot of money is less attractive to a woman. So they have their own things that they have to deal with. But I think for women, um, yeah, I think a lot of us, they really believe like we're not good with money. Yeah. So one of the jokes I tell my clients when I we're on like Zoom together, these are mostly new clients. I'm like, listen, I know you're good with money. And how I know is that you're on the Zoom call. And I'm like, none of you look homeless. <laughs> I don't know if you are in a box. And if you were, you probably wouldn't be on this call because you wouldn't have internet. And that sounds like funny, but like, I think it's so easy for our brains to latch on to how we're bad with money. But like, I just really help them see like, you're tell me how you're actually good with money. Right. And I know that in your book, you mentioned that too, is like, you know, we have this big fear that we're going to run out and, you know, uh, and like not be secure. And like, is that even really true? I mean, we're very far from that. Like even people taking big risks are far from like, you know, becoming homeless and such like that too. So exactly. It's, yeah. it's just, I mean, is it possible? Sure. But and this is where I see a lot of my clients are like, oh, once I have this much money, I'll feel secure. But the thing is, if you don't deal with these, you know, we call these scarcity thoughts, they actually get worse the more money you have because then you get scared of losing it all. Ah, interesting point. I didn't even think about that. That's just one, you know, possibility, but it doesn't get better because like you're an entrepreneur. So, you know, I think everyone's first goal as a coach is to make that first 100K and they're like, oh, everything's going to be great. But that's just not true. <laughs> right. And it doesn't There's get problems better. problems at every level. I mean, I think that one thing in, this, in the entrepreneur circles we have is that the people that are so transparent, you know, Sonny and Peter Kim and, you know, all the, the describing like what it's like to make in these higher echelons that the problems don't go away. They just, they're just a little different. They get magnified, actually. You know, one of the things my business coach taught me is, you know, whatever problems you have in your business, if you don't clean them up, it just gets a lot worse the more money you make. Interesting. Because the problems become more expensive. Yeah. And, and you're, I think you're right too, that increased fear of losing it, the higher, the more you have, the higher you are, the, the longer to fall. Yeah. So, but that's, you know, that's when you have, haven't cleaned up your thoughts about money. Right. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, everyone thinks they're going to like be home. I don't think they're like consciously thinking they're going to be homeless, but I think that fear, it only comes from the one they're worrying about losing it all and what would happen. Right. But I'm sure it does happen, but it's like, it's just a very unlikely scenario. Well, I know that your time is short and I really think that everyone should just simply pick up your book because I think that's a really great introduction to the, the money mindset of, that is really missing um, in our education of, you know, all sure. like interacting with the world um, and really just like challenging some of the things that we've always been grown up with, those thoughts that build up into a belief. I think that you do a really great job of doing some practical steps for that. Um, and that book, again, is Defining Wealth for Women, Peace, Purpose, and Plenty of Cash. And you can read it even if you're a guy. Um, still lots of things apply to that for sure. Yeah. I'm curious if men have read it. I'm sure. Oh, wait, no. I see a man did email me. So I know at least one. Man, one <laughs> at least one. <laughs> at least one has read it. He, he was, uh, I guess, okay with reading a pink book. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate all your advice. So helpful. Um, and thank you again for putting this book out into the world. It's going to benefit so many people. Thank you. Learn more about the Boss Business of Surgery series at bosssurgery.com.
Thanks for listening. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on in the Boss Business of Surgery series, then make sure to check out bosssurgery.com.